Hello and welcome to episode four of the podcast for MSMU's chemistry online course with Glenn in the summer of 2017. Hope you've had a great 4th of July. Last podcast, episode number three, um, I ended by trying to get you to visualize the atomic symbol notation for specific isotopes. For example, if you were talking about a specific isotope of iron, you would write the capital F and the lowercase e for the atomic symbol, Fe. And then suppose you meant um, the isotope of iron that has uh, a total of 59 particles in the nucleus. That's 26 protons and uh, 33, yes, 33 neutrons. I'm not sure if that isotope actually exists. I think it doesn't. But if it did... Um, you would write a small 59 in the upper left corner next to your capital F, lowercase e. And you would write a small 26 in the lower left corner. That's the atomic number. Remember, the atomic number is the number of protons in the atom, and the number of protons defines what the atom is. It defines its behavior chemically. It defines everything about the atom except for the mass. The mass number, in this case 59, is the total of the number of protons and the number of neutrons. The number of neutrons has nothing to do at all with the chemical properties of the atom. I mean, you can use iron to make steel. It doesn't matter how many neutrons the atoms of iron have. You can use any isotope of iron to make steel. You can use that to nourish your body because hemoglobin requires iron. You can use that for doing whatever it is that people do with iron. Now, the only difference, of course, is the mass. Um, iron-59 is going to be heavier than the most common isotope of iron in nature, which is iron-56. Also, certain isotopes of iron and of other elements may be radioactive. And uh, remember, radioactivity is the, the tendency of an atom's nucleus to just fall apart just by itself, just without any provocation, it just falls apart. So that's... Um, that's radioactivity, and I described that using an example from the hospital. Large, rich, well-equipped um, hospitals have their own atom-smashing device with which they make unstable isotopes of certain elements, such as iodine-131 uh, for cancer treatments or for medical imaging. Medical imaging. Yes, the PET scan is the most, most um, interesting of uh, the medical imaging isotope applications, um, in my opinion, where they make a, an, an unstable isotope of fluorine and they stick it on a glucose molecule because after the fluorine decays, after the fluorine just falls apart, it becomes oxygen. And so that glucose molecule now becomes just an ordinary glucose molecule. The thing that they use, the way they stick the fluorine, the radioactive fluorine on the glucose molecule is they kick off a hydrogen and an oxygen. So if that fluorine turns into an oxygen, it can just pick up a hydrogen atom from anywhere in your body, no harm done, and it's a regular glucose molecule, and your body is in no danger at all of any further radioactivity. So that was just an interesting aside. Uh, that's not important for your quiz. But uh, let me uh, get into what is important, the charges. Now, an atom that is charged is called an ion. Why would an atom be charged? An atom would be charged if that atom had some electrons missing 
or had some extra electrons. Okay? Now, when an atom has some electrons missing, that means some other atom took, took those electrons away, or um, some, some high-energy particle crashed into that atom and kicked off some electrons. Both of these things typically happen to the outside electrons of an atom. Now, what about when an atom has too many electrons? If an atom somehow collects extra electrons from some place, like from another atom, then the atom is now an ion. It is negatively charged because it has extra electrons, and those extra electrons typically sit on the outside of the atom. Why am I talking about the outside? It's because most atoms in this universe arrange their electrons in layers, just like you when you go out skiing or something, or you go out to make a snowman with your kids, or a snow woman, or a snow animal. Yes? You dress in layers. The atoms also dress in layers. They dress in layers of electrons. The largest atoms could have multiple layers of... They could have five, six, seven layers of electrons. The smallest atoms, of course, would only have one layer of electrons. Now, um... It's the outer layer of electrons on any atom that, it, that interfaces with uh, the rest of the environment. So, for example, if I see you on a snowy day out, um, in, at Big Bear or something, yes, uh, I'm gonna, the first thing I'm going to see from a distance is your, is your coat, the, the shell of your parka, yes? That is like the outside layer of, of an atom, the outside layer of electrons. It's just this, in the same way, if an atom sees another atom, the first thing that gets seen is an outside layer of electrons. And guess what, folks? It's in, at, it is at this outside layer that all the chemistry happens. All the chemistry that, that's happening in your body because you're breathing, because you just ate breakfast a couple hours ago, or because your, your brain is working, uh, your eyes are working, all that chemistry, it has only to do with the outer layer of electrons. That's the layer at which atoms first interact. So there's a special name for that, of course. The outer layer of electrons is called the valence layer also known as the valence shell. It has some valence electrons. Some atoms like to collect extra valence electrons, and they become negatively charged. Some atoms like to lose their valence electrons, give them away to other atoms, and then they become positively charged. Remember, uh, sorry, remember that any atom has a certain number of protons, it has that same number of electrons if that atom is neutral, if it has no charge. If the atom has a charge, let's say a plus two charge, then that atom has two fewer electrons than protons. Specific example, iron. Um, iron has 26 protons because it's number 26 on the periodic table. The atomic number is 26. So iron also has 26 electrons. But what about iron 2 plus, Fe2 plus? Fe2 plus is the form of iron that is most readily digestible to the human body. So Fe2 plus, how many electrons does that have? Not 26 anymore. It's missing two. So it has 24 electrons. 24 electrons. That type of calculation is going to be on the quiz. Now, there's a joke about this. Two atoms were walking down the street and one atom says to the other atom, hey, I think I just lost an electron. And the other atom says, are you positive? No. Wait, I'm sorry. I just gave the joke away. It goes like this. Two atoms are walking down the street, and one atom says to the other atom, 
hey, I think I just lost an electron. And the other atom says, how do you know? Are you sure? And then the other atom says, yes, I'm positive. Get it? Lost an electron? Positive? Haha. <laughs> Thank you. Or, sorry. So, um, the, there is another form of iron in nature, and it is the most common form of iron if it is an ion in nature, and that is Fe3+. How many electrons does that have if iron has 26 protons? I'll give you a moment. 26 protons. Fe3+. How many electrons? That's right, 23 electrons. Now, um, if you find a piece of steel or um, a piece of cast iron, like a black skillet, you know, that contains elemental iron. It has no charge. It is just Fe. You could say Fe0 if you wanted to, but it is just Fe. No charge there. There are certain foods that I know that you feed your kids, and um, it contains this Fe, this elemental iron. Um, fortified cereals, infant cereals that are fortified with iron, even cereals that big kids eat and adults eat. You know, the breakfast cereal like Wheaties or Total. Sometimes those cereals contain iron supplements in the form of elemental iron. You can tell by looking at the ingredients. If it says electrolytic iron in the ingredients, yeah, that's elemental iron. Very tiny, tiny particles of pure iron metal are in that cereal. And you can verify that by taking that cereal, crushing it up, mixing it with some water, crushing the cereal some more, and then passing a very strong magnet through that mush. And you'll find that that magnet is going to collect some little black specks, pure iron, from the cereal. Why would they do that? And why would you let your kids eat that? It's because your body is capable of converting pure elemental iron into Fe2+, the form that is most digestible to humans. It happens in your stomach because your stomach has some pretty strong acid. Even your kid's stomach has pretty strong acid. So uh, you can actually facilitate that process, though. There is much that you can do to um, in improve the digestibility of the iron supplements in the cereal that you eat or the iron supplements in the cereal that you feed your kids, if you just give your kid or yourself orange juice while they're having that cereal, I mean, I don't mean mix the orange juice in, but, you know, I just mean a glass of orange juice on the side. Ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C in the orange juice. It could be anything. It could be lemonade even. The vitamin C molecule actually helps the iron, uh, just a neutral iron, elemental iron, just pure iron, to convert into iron 2+. How does it do that? Steals two electrons. That's right. The ascorbic acid or vitamin C molecule will just easily steal a couple of electrons from an iron atom to make it iron 2+. And then, then suddenly it's, it's very absorbable to the human body. That little vitamin C factoid is for you. It is not for the quiz. So let me move on to stuff that you're going to need for the quiz. I have made a video about that, and I have posted that video on um, in Module 2 here on the Moodle. I mean, I'm sorry, the Moodle? I said Moodle? I, I can't believe it. I mean, on the canvas, on the canvas. All right, so uh, I also have some practice problems for you um, also posted there along with the video on the quiz on, uh, on the practice quiz on the canvas. So there are uh, some calculations there, and I'm going to help you with that right now. A new unit here, moles. Moles 
if you're taking the lab portion of this class, you already saw millimoles used by one of the students in the technical measurements discussion. For the rest of you, moles. A mole is just like a pair or a dozen. How many things are in a pair? That's right, two. How many things are in a dozen? That's right, 12. How many things are in a baker's dozen? That's right, 13. How many things are in a mole? That's right, 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd power. That's what it is. A mole is just a specific number of things. It's always 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd power. Do you need to memorize that number? No, that, is, that number is given to you at the beginning of the quiz. 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd power. Okay, that is a mole. How many in a dozen? How many in a pair? And how many in a mole? That's right. It's just another number. So if you have a mole of pencils, that's a lot of pencils. I doubt there are enough trees on the planet for a mole of pencils. However, if you have a mole of sugar molecules, that's no problem. A mole of sugar molecules is less than one pound of sugar. It's like a lot less than one pound of sugar. So uh, that is a mole. Uh, you are going to have to learn how to convert between weight and moles. So, for example, if you have 42 kilograms of iron, how many moles is that? I know that you know how to convert between kilograms and grams. There are a thousand grams in one kilogram. That is a number that I expect you to have memorized for the previous quiz, um, which is the quiz that you're taking with Examinee this week. Uh, I'm talking here about the quiz that you're taking with Examinee next week, the quiz on this week two material. Right now, a uh, thousand grams in one kilogram. I expect you know that. But once you use that, you get 42 kilograms of iron is 42,000 grams of iron. But that still doesn't help me if the question is how many moles of iron are in 42 kilograms of iron. How can I figure out how many moles of iron are in 42 kilograms? First, I convert to grams. But how can I find out how many moles of iron are in 42,000 grams of iron? I need someone to tell me how many grams of iron there are in one mole of iron. And who's going to tell me? The periodic table is going to tell you. In every quiz question where I ask you to do a moles calculation with grams, I offer also a periodic table. Now, you can see a colorful periodic table at ptable.com. When you go there, um, when you're not driving, of course, you'll see the atomic number in each square. You'll see the atomic symbol in each square, Fe in the case of iron. And you'll see a long decimal number at the bottom of each square. In the case of iron, it's 55.845. What is that number? That number is the average atomic mass of iron. What do they mean by average? Well, it happens to be the case that of all the iron in the universe, there is a certain percentage of that iron, which is iron 56, iron with mass number 56. There is a certain percentage of that iron, which is iron 55. That's the same iron, but with one less neutron. There is a certain percentage of the iron in the universe, which is iron 57, which is the same the same iron, but just a couple extra neutrons. So the average atomic mass, 55.845 atomic mass units, is 
the average of all of the isotopes of iron according to how abundant they are in the universe. It's a weighted average. Here's what I mean by that. Suppose it were 98% iron 56 in the universe, 1% iron 55, and 1% iron 57. Just suppose. If that were the case, then to calculate the average atomic mass, I would go 98% times the mass of iron 56, 1% times the mass of iron 55, 1% times the mass of iron 57, and I add all those products together, all the answers to those multiplication problems together, and I get the average atomic mass. Now, in, in, in real life, in, in the universe, when you do that with the actual percentages and they are not so neat as 98%, 1%, 1%. I mean, they have decimals and they are, they are quite long. But if you add up all the percentages times all of the exact masses or the very precisely measured masses of each isotope of iron, you get 55.845. Those are in units of atomic mass units. How does this help us for figuring out how many moles of iron are in 42,000 grams of iron? Well... It just happens to be the case that the special number that the word mole refers to is specifically and intentionally designed. 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd. That number has been designed for your convenience. It happens to be the number of iron atoms that you would need if you wanted 55.845 grams to be a certain uh, uh, to be that number of iron atoms okay i'm talking about iron right now but originally carbon was used to 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 calculate this number 6.022 times 10 to 23rd so let me go to carbon how many carbon atoms would i need if i wanted 12.011 grams of carbon if I wanted 12.011 grams of just any random sample of carbon from the universe, 12.011 grams, I would need 6.022 times 10 and 23rd carbon atoms. That's how many I would need. Okay? So that number, 6.022 times 10 and 23rd, it is specifically designed so that any atomic mass, any average atomic mass you see on the periodic table automatically is the number of grams that are that there are in one mole of that atom iron 55.845 if i have 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd iron atoms then the mass in grams of that many iron atoms is going to be 55.845 grams let's look at helium the average atomic mass of helium on the periodic table is 4.0026 atomic mass units, 4.0026. But because of the magic number of the mole, 6.022 times 10 and 23rd, because of that number, one mole of helium atoms weighs 4.0026 grams. I can just lift the number right off the periodic table. So the practice quiz problem is, how many moles of iron atoms are there in 42 kilograms of iron? Well, 42 kilograms is 42,000 grams. So 
you just need to calculate how many moles of iron atoms are there in 42,000 grams of iron atoms. And here's how you do it. You write down, don't write it now because you're driving, right? But just, you know, in your mind or in your imagination, while you're looking at the road, 42,000 grams, that is written on top, times, now next to 42,000 grams, it may be in parentheses with a fraction bar. I have on top of the fraction bar one mole. I put one mole on top because moles is what I want. On the bottom, I put how many grams of iron there are in a mole, which is, according to the periodic table, 55.845. 55.845 grams. That goes on the bottom. That's grams of iron. So grams... Sorry, my, uh, I'm, I'm babysitting some dogs. They're noisy. Okay. All right. So the, the grams of iron... Excuse me. Okay, sorry. The grams of iron cancel on the top and the bottom. You can cross the grams of iron out. Now you have 42,000 times 1 divided by 55.845. You do that on the calculator, and you get the answer. That's how many moles of iron atoms there are in 42 kilograms of iron. You need to round the answer to two significant figures because 42 kilograms has only two significant figures. Speaking of significant figures, it's important for you to understand that 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd, the number of things there are in a mole, is considered a measurement in chemistry. So you have to respect the significant figures when you have an answer in moles also. I know that uh, on the web assign, I have asked you to consider any counted items as exact, meaning significant figures are irrelevant. But when you have moles, when you're trying to count items in moles, the number is so large, it is almost impossible to count uh, exactly any, any, any number of things in moles. So we consider moles a measurement. So any number of moles is subject to the same significant figures rules as, um, as grams or milliliters or anything else that's a measurement. Remember that when you look at the one mole in this calculation, it was 42,000 grams of iron times one mole of iron divided by 55.845 grams of iron. That one mole that I mentioned in the middle there, that one mole, that number one um, is not used in counting significant figures because that number one is not a count and not a measurement. It is a definition. By definition, one mole of iron on the periodic table is 55.845 grams. The 55.845 grams is a measurement, but that one mole, the one, that is a definition because it's the definition of the mole. By definition, the way we design the number for moles, 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd, the way we design that number is in such a way that you can look at the periodic table for any element, take the average atomic mass, and that will automatically be the number of grams there are in one mole of that atom. One mole, by definition. So you don't count that one. Uh, you don't count the significant figures using that one, that, that, that figure of one mole in your calculation. All right. I know that was confusing, and I'm sorry about that. However, I'm glad that you listened. The reason why I'm glad that you listened is because later when you're not driving and you go look at the practice um, calculations for the quiz video in this module, 
when you look at that video, it's going to make sense to you. you because you've already heard it once. It has been lodged in your brain at least once via this podcast. So uh, that's why we're doing this. Now, um, let's go on to another type of question. Um, there are certain places on the periodic table where uh, things tend to fall into place. Here's what I mean. The periodic table is not something that we humans designed completely. I mean, it's more like we noticed stuff. So on the periodic table, the elements are arranged by atomic number. If you look carefully at the, at the atomic masses on the periodic table, you could get almost the same arrangement by arranging the elements by atomic mass. In fact, the very first periodic table in the 19th century by the Russian guy Dmitry Mendeleev, um, the very first periodic table was arranged by atomic mass, not by atomic number. But when you do that, when you arrange the atoms in order by either atomic mass or most of the time even by... Uh, no, by either atomic number or most of the time even by atomic mass, when you arrange them in order, they happen to fit patterns. So it just happens to be the case that all of the elements on the left of the periodic table are metals. What, you got sodium there, that's a metal, manganese, iron, chromium, gold, silver, copper, nickel, these are all iron, these are all metals. They're all on the left side of the periodic table. There's this tiny portion of the periodic table on the right side, which are nonmetals, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine, chlorine, bromine, iodine. These are nonmetals, helium, neon. Now, um, you'll see in the video I have, um, I, I show a different periodic table that has a, uh, has a, a, mark, a special marking on it to show which are the metals and which are the nonmetals. When you see that, I know you're going to be surprised. There are very few nonmetals in the universe. There are, I mean, most of the different kinds of atoms, most of the elements in the universe are metals. Now, um, the periodic table is divided into two parts uh, with a gap. So there is the main part that you'll see on top of any periodic table. And then there's, there's a big gap at the bottom of that. And there are these two rows that are separated on the bottom. The first row starts with lanthanum. And the second row starts with actinum. These are the bottom two rows, which are separated by a gap from the rest of the periodic table. It's like the way Hawaii is separated from the mainland, you know what I mean? So those two rows at the bottom, they are known as the lanthanides for the lanthanum row and the actinides for the, um, for the actinium row. <laughs> Collectively, those two rows are known as... Sorry, not you, the dog. Collectively, those two rows are known as uh, the rare earth metals or the rare earth elements. You may have heard about them in the news, uh, in many cell phones or plasma screen TVs or other types of flat displays. Uh, rare earth elements are used to uh, generate the different colored lights that are required to show you the movie that you wanted to see or to, or to show you the app icon that you wanted to tap on. Um, some of these rare earth elements are also used in um, other technology in your home. For example, americium, atomic number 95. It is one of the actinides. Americium is um, actually an artificial element. Uh, it, it is not found in nature. You have to use an atom smasher to make it, I believe. So americium, 
there is an isotope of americium. It is americium-241, mass number 241, and they put that in your smoke detector. And the reason they do that is because americium-241 is radioactive, and a, a small mass, a very small mass of americium-241 will continuously emit um, high-energy particles from their nucleuses, from their nuclei, and they will, those particles will hit the air. But if those particles meet smoke instead of air, they will hit the larger smoke particles and kick off some electrons. So when some electrons get kicked off, the smoke particles are now ions. Ions are charged. Charged things can move electricity. And so your smoke detector is just waiting there for electricity to move in this little gap of air. It's just waiting for smoke particles to get into that gap, become ions, move electricity, and then beep! Yes, that's right. The smoke detector goes off and your life is saved. So uh, that's just an example of how we use the rare earth elements. For your quiz, you need to know where on the periodic, uh, where on the periodic table the lanthanides are. Where are the actinides? You need to know where are the nonmetals and where are the metals. You do not need to know where are the metalloids. Uh, but um, it is kind of interesting. If you go on, uh, if you go to ptable.com, the metalloids are colored in this darker kind of forest green, sort of a military kind of green. Metalloids are elements that have some properties of metals, some properties of nonmetals. So the properties of nonmetals are they're brittle. You know, um, you can if you try to bend a nonmetal, usually it will break. If you try to bend a metal, usually it will bend. Um, if you try to conduct electricity through a metal, success. If you try to conduct electricity through a nonmetal, not so much. If you try to heat up a metal, it will heat up very quickly for you. If you try to heat up a nonmetal, it might melt instead. So uh, that's um, that's. Uh, those are some differences between metals and nonmetals, and metalloids just straddle the fence. So, for example, silicon is a metalloid. Can you conduct electricity through it? Kind of. It is a semiconductor. Can you bend it? No. It will just break. Is it shiny the way a metal is? Yes, silicon is shiny the way a metal is. Uh, can you conduct heat through it? Mm, kind of. So uh, that's an example of a metalloid, straddling the fence between metal and non-metal. There's a lot of information about uh, the differences between metals and non-metals, so if you're interested, please send me some questions via email. Um, there's no further information about those differences that I'm going to ask you on the quiz for next week. Now, um, the other items that are of interest in Chapter 2 are how the heck do we know these atomic masses? So I, I just recently here in this podcast episode 4 explained to you that the atomic masses that you see on the periodic table are averages of the very precisely measured atomic masses um, of every isotope in the universe or every type of isotope in the universe for, for a given atom. How can anybody measure with any precision at all the mass of an individual atom? The answer is in a picture in your textbook, and it is a figure 2.15. It is fascinating. It is a diagram of the inner workings of an instrument called a mass spectrometer. 
the mass spectrometer is like the bee's knees in chemistry these days, in analytical chemistry these days. Like so if you have a mystery mixture or you have a mystery molecule, you want to know what it is, you use a mass spectrometer on it because this is the machine that will weigh individual molecules and atoms with very high precision. Very high accuracy and very high precision. Ha ha ha. So the way this thing works is very similar to the way J.J. Thompson discovered the electron. You remember he used a tube. In his case, it was a glass tube. He took the air out of that tube. He put two pieces of metal in that tube. One he connected to the positive side of an electric current. The other he collect, connected to a negative side. And, and then he saw, he saw a, a beam of electrons. And he was like, wow, there's a beam of electrons coming from this metal. And it doesn't matter what metal I put in there. Any metal at all. It's the same beam of electrons. So... Then he bent the beam of that electron, uh, that that beam of electrons, using a magnet, using another pair of uh, metal plates with electric current connected there. So he bent the beam of electrons um, using uh, magnets and electricity in the very same way, just slightly opposite. Here's what we do: we get a sample of the atoms that you're interested in, the atoms that you want to weigh. And then, I mean, it could be a drop of it if it's a liquid, it could be a piece of it if it's a solid, or it could be a puff of it if it's a gas. We put that in this chamber, in this tube that has no air. We heat that up so that if it's a liquid or a solid, some, some of the atoms will, will become vaporized. And then we hit them. We hit all those atoms with a, with a high-energy um, flow of electrons. Just through, just the electrons are just shooting through that, that, that tube. Um, just... In one end, end of the tube, uh, that there's um, some electrons just shooting through, and they are kicking off electrons from the atoms of your sample, the atoms that you want to weigh. So now, every atom that you want to weigh has uh, one or two electrons just kicked off, just missing those electrons. Right? What does that mean? That means your atom is what? Positively charged or negatively charged? That's right, it's positively charged. So now that your atoms are positively charged we can accelerate them. We can put a positive charged metal plate behind them and a negatively charged metal plate way at the other end of the tube and we can accelerate those atoms of your sample so that they form a beam and they're traveling really fast from, from, the, from the beginning of the tube to the other end of the tube. How is that going to help us weigh them? Well, it's going to help us weigh them if we bend the tube. So we bend the tube so that the atoms... Don't strike the end of the tube. They instead crash into the some place along the bend of the tube. Okay, and then at the true end of the tube, which we bent away, at the true end of the tube, we put a detector. So if any molecule lands on the detector, um, the, te the detector gives us a ping, or it sends a signal to a computer, or something like that. It just notifies us if a molecule lands on the detector. Okay. So nothing is landing on, on the detector now because everything is crashing into the bend of the tube. And then we use a very finely controlled magnet, an electromagnet, a magnet that we can control very finely using electricity. All right? So we put a magnet in the bend, and that magnet bends the beam of atoms, just like J.J. Thompson bent his beam of electrons. Okay, Except this time we're finely tuning how far we're bending the beam. So when we increase the strength of the magnetic field, the, the beam bends more. 
and we decrease the strength of that, of that magnetic field, the beam bends less. Why are we doing this? It's because the heavier atoms are going to be harder to bend the path of. Right? Heavier atoms are like a heavier car. It's harder to turn a heavier car on the freeway. Like if you have a truck on the freeway and you want to turn it suddenly, well, good luck. You're probably going to jackknife that thing. So it's harder, just the same thing with atoms. It's harder to turn the path of a fast-moving atom. Of course, in this case, these atoms are charged, so I could also call them ions. So it's harder to turn the path of a fast-moving moving ion if the ion happens to be very heavy. That means we just turn the path of the, of the ions using our magnetic field. We just keep on turning it until we detect the atom or the ion hitting our detector. As soon as that, that, that atom or ion hits our detector, then we can stop turning the path and we know by the strength of the magnetic field necessary to detect that atom, by the strength of the magnetic field that we had to use, we can calculate how heavy that atom was. Pretty clever, right? Yeah, very clever. If you had helium atoms in that mass, spec uh, mass spectrometer machine, you would hardly have to touch the magnetic field at all. It would just be so easy to bend the path of those helium atoms, which become ions in the machine. If you had something like cholesterol molecules in there, yeah, those are very heavy. Compared to helium atoms, you would use a strong magnetic field, and by the strength of the magnetic field that is necessary to bend the path of the cholesterol molecules, we can calculate, or the computer can calculate for us, actually, the exact mass, well, the very precise, the very accurate mass of each cholesterol molecule individually. Fascinating, isn't it? So that is how we know. Um how much individual atoms weigh. Okay, um, that's it for episode four here. Um, I think I'm going to be publishing one more episode for this week two material because there's a lot of stuff to know about this week two. However, uh, I think if you're interested just in um, quiz preparation, this week four is the end of your quiz preparation as far as audio podcasts go for the quiz that you'll take next week on the week two material. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.